Welcome back to the LifeWorks Living Well video podcast. I'm Mark Hennick. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is an organizational psychologist, an internationally recognized teacher, and a prolific author whose books on positive psychology, happiness, and leadership have been translated into more than 30 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. As a lecturer at Harvard, he taught two of the most popular university courses in, in that school's history on positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. Dr. Ben Shahar is also the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, as well as the co-founder and chief product officer of Potential Life. He joins me now on Living Well. Dr. Shahar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. Great to be here. So now I want to get right to it. I, I wanted to talk to you about positive psychology, I think partly because I think it still, after all these years, gets a bit of a bad rap. So let's start with what positive psychology actually is, and how is it distinct or different from typical psychology as usual? Yeah, so positive psychology, very simply put, is about focusing on what works. So while traditional psychology mostly has focused on problems, on uh, psychopathology, on uh, problems in relationships, on weaknesses. Positive psychology focuses on what is working in a relationship. It focuses on strength, on things that are going well. In other words, it essentially complements the field of psychology so that you have a holistic, WH, holistic picture of reality, focusing on the problems and focusing on the virtues, on what is not working and on what is working. Mm. Now, I think uh, part of the misperception, I think, of positive psychology uh, is that it's it, it's either just be positive, right? Like, and you know, somebody's about to to diminish and dismiss something when they add the word "just" uh, in front of it, um, or even worse, sometimes that uh, it's about pushing away or suppressing negative experiences. So, tell me about what the actual positive psychology perspective is on adversity, on, on dealing with your challenging emotions, which I think are probably inevitable. Yes, exactly. So, you know, part of the um, bad rep that positive psychology has, uh, has acquired is, um, has been uh, rightfully earned. It's justified uh, because many people who go into this field of positive psychology talk about how you need to be positive all the time. Why? Because there's research showing that when you are positive, when you increase positive emotions, uh, you are um, not, not just happier, you're also more creative, you have better relationships, you're more productive, you're physically healthier. Uh, at the same time, what this claim, this uh, objective is ignoring is part of our nature. And part of our nature is that we experience sadness and anger and uh, frustration and, and negativity at times. And when we ignore that part of our nature, we pay a very high price. So toxic positivity is a real thing. So a person who doesn't give themselves the permission to be human, the permission to experience the full range of uh, emotions, pleasurable and painful, uh, will not ultimately be happy, will experience even more frustration than necessary. So one of the things that I emphasize, and this is my first lecture when I talk about the field of positive psychology or more broadly, the science of happiness, is that the first step to happiness is allowing in unhappiness, giving ourselves the permission to be human, the permission to experience the full range of human emotions is essential for a full and fulfilling life. 
Mm. It almost, I mean, you mentioned uh, the toxic positivity piece, and I have such a complicated, I think, views on toxic positivity because it always, for me anyway, gets presented as kind of a straw man of people saying it's just simple, focus on the good. But in my life anyway, nobody actually ever really says that. You know, it, it seems like sometimes people make well meaning. Um, suggestions, probably, uh, I hope anyway, that it's well-meaning, uh, but it just might, might not match up with where I am right there. It might be too much of a disparity, right? Try yoga, right? I can't get out of bed. So how am I going to do yoga? So in that sense, it seems positivity or, or, or toxic positivity, but then it's more of a subjective thing. Is is that what you found as well, that some of these, these um, uh, activities that get called toxic positive, positivity might actually be helpful uh, if the person were at a point where they were able to do them. Uh, that's the point. The, the point is to be at that point, uh, meaning right. it's contextual. So I'll give you an example that is uh, quite uh, common within the field of positive psychology or, um, or positive thinking um, that comes more from the, the self-help movement. So they talk about positive self-talk. You know, stand in front of the mirror and tell yourself, you know, I'm great, I'm, I'm, I'm powerful, I'm successful, and you will become even greater, more powerful, and more successful. Well, it turns out that for many people, doing that will have the exact opposite effect. It will actually lower their self-confidence and self-esteem. When? When there is, as you pointed out, too much disparity between where they are and where they want to get to. So if I'm feeling down and, uh, and, and if I can, as you say, hardly get out of bed, telling myself I'm all powerful and capable, you know, that, that will not just fall on deaf ears. That will um, actually make me feel worse about myself. Why aren't mm. I that way? Especially when I did something that I was told would help me. In right, by an, ex by an expert or somebody perceived by an by, expert. Exactly. Yeah. You know, by a, a, you know, a best-selling author with a, with, a, with a perfect smile on his face. So, <laughs> right. you know, that, 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 that's a problem. And that puts us down. What we need to do is meet ourselves or meet others closer to where they are. So, for example, if, if I meet someone who's, uh, you know, going through a, a horrific uh, breakup in their relationship or they're, you know, very ill and I tell them, just smile, just be happy and you'll feel so much better. I mean, really? That's only going to make them feel worse. I need to be empathic. In other words, understand where they are, just as I need to be empathic toward myself, understand where I am. When I introduce, uh, whether it's positive self-talk or, or any other intervention. In other words, this gap has to be narrow. So maybe not go to yoga, but how about getting up and, and taking a walk for five minutes? Or how about me helping you or us walking together for five minutes, which may be more realistic than you know, starting in a, a full-on exercise regime? Hmm. I, I've never really made this linkage before between um, what sounds like emotional intelligence and empathy on behalf of the person who's trying to help uh, and positive psychology and some of the activities they're in. I think sometimes it gets painted with a broad brush. But really what I hear you saying is, you know, somebody actually looking at the other person and before they speak, asking themselves, what does this person actually need from me? Right. Exactly. So it's not one size fits all. In fact, um, I remember when this, uh, I was a student, an undergraduate, when uh, this book came out by Robin Dawes, uh, who's uh, a psychologist and was a psychologist. And, and, and the book was uh, about the field of psychotherapy. And it, it, it conducted a meta-analysis looking at all the studies that, it, that he could find on, uh, psycho on um, therapy. And 
the bottom line is that therapy helps. It's a good thing for, for most people. But the other bottom line was that it doesn't matter what kind of therapy, that it could be cognitive behavioral therapy or transpersonal or psychoanalysis or Jungian or Freudian, you name it. They could all help. They're all beneficial. What does determine the efficacy of, uh, of therapy? Empathy. Mm. Can you put yourself in the other person's shoes? Can you um, come close to them? Because there is no one size fit all. And that is important whether we're therapists or friends. And again, whether we're friends to others or friends to ourselves, trying to help ourselves. Yeah, that friends to ourself piece, you know, this, this idea that you almost need to have a secure attachment in order to be able to help other people because it's such a relational thing, right? If, if you don't think, uh, or if you can't trust yourself, or if you don't trust relationships, how are you supposed to build a trusting relationship with somebody else, right? So we have to very much um, walk the talk. And that actually brings me to, to uh, you do some trainings in happiness, and I want to flesh those out uh, in a minute too. But, but before we get there, do you, is this a case of people, you know, whether you're in positive psychology or motivational training or self-help or whatever, is it a case of if you can't do teach uh, or do you really have to be authentically happy and, and have good positivity in order to be able to help others do it too? Yeah, the, the, the bottom line is, is that if you can't do, don't teach, or rather if you don't do, don't teach. Because, you know, I don't need to be the happiest person in the world to teach happiness. I'm not the happiest person in the world, not even close to it. However, I do put in the work. I do introduce interventions into my life that uh, have helped me become happier. And continue to do the same. And therefore, I'm in a good, you know, I often tell uh, my students that I am the right person to teach happiness. Why? Because I wasn't born happy. You know, I got into this whole field because I was unhappy. And I'm constantly learning. I'm journeying. You know, I refer to my students as fellow journeyers because we're on this path together. However, I would never teach something that I haven't tried or don't try. So when, 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 all my teachings comprise uh, has three criteria that I that I introduce. One criteria criterion is um, has to be academically rigorous. You know, I'm 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 a scholar, I'm a scientist. I will not teach anything that just comes from you know self help or new age movement, even if it sounds good. It has to be based on research. Second, uh, it has to be applied. So I'm not just about teaching, you know, theoretical or basic research. I'm, I'm, I'm about teaching things that are applied. And the third criterion is that I've applied it and tried it myself. So I will not teach anything that I, that I, that I have not tried because otherwise it usually doesn't, um, um, doesn't have an impact on, on the listener. You know, be the, in, in the words of Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, well, and I mean, you also mentioned, I, I would think that that people who are motivated to either study happiness as a as an objective thing out there, an academic thing, or to learn happiness because they're feeling unhappy, there's some internal motivation there that, that, that they want to. And I appreciate that you saying that because you didn't feel happy at the time. So, you know, that raises me for me the question, maybe it's an, an old philosophy question, I guess, if we can actually really know authentic happiness and or any positive emotion for that matter without also knowing the opposite, the, you know, the, the uh, equal and opposite force, the unhappiness, the darkness? Is it a, is it a relative experience? Um, the answer is yes. 
And um, the reason why it is a philosophical question, even more so than a psychological question, is because, because it is theoretical, because it's not realistic to be in a place where you would just experience pleasurable emotions. We all do. Or, you know, as, as I point out to my students, there are two kinds of people who don't experience painful emotions, the psychopaths and the dead. And so if you're neither, you will experience hardships and difficulties. If you're neither, you will have conflicts within your relationship, no matter how amazing you and your partner are. Uh, you will struggle at work at times. You will have days when you won't want to get out of bed in the morning um, or do your yoga or, or, or go for a five-minute walk. We all have those days. It's part of the human condition. Now, thankfully, we have all those days because, as you point out, it's because of those experiences that we can better appreciate when things are going well. You know, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, where he talks about how each time we experience a painful emotion, it digs into us and expands our capacity for emotions in general, being painful mm. or pleasurable. And then we get to choose, I mean, the, the, of course, the famous Victor, Victor Frankl quote that between stimulus and response, there's a space and we can choose. That's where, that's where our power is. Uh, that stuff happens. You know, I, I experienced this with writing my, my memoir, too, which is a very personal story. But I kind of came to the place where it was, well, all this stuff happened in my childhood. Now what? You know, it's, it's as Anne Lamott says, everything you've experienced is material. It's yours. You own it. So you get to choose what you do with it. And that, I find, is incredibly empowering. You know, it's, it's that you can change. So that raises for me then the question if, you know, the, there's been a lot of talk or research around how temperament is innate, uh, how uh, your personality is, is supposed to be by definition fixed and stable set of characteristics. It's not jumping around and changing all the time. Um, and what we're really talking about here is more than just mood. It's more than just good days and bad days. It's somebody's way of being. So then if somebody has a less than optimally positive or happy mindset um, baseline disposition, can that actually be changed if it is their day-to-day -day way of being? Yeah. Um, so I, I think you can probably guess my answer to that. Uh, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing <laughs> if I didn't think that uh, we can change. Um, but, but the answer is, is more complicated than just yes. Mm. Um, when we look at our overall happiness, there is um, the happiness pie. And this is research by Sonia Lubomirsky, by Kenneth Sheldon and others, that on that pie, on average, and I'm emphasizing average here, 50% of our happiness level is determined by our, uh, um, by our genetic makeup, and by our very early experiences that we have zero control over. That's 50% of the happiness pie. That's a lot on average. On average, 10% is determined by, uh, by external circumstances, such as where we live, such as how much money we have, such as uh, the weather. 10%, not a lot on average. 40% is on average determined by our choices, the little and big choices that we make. Now, why do I emphasize average? Because take, for example, a person who right now is living in uh, Kiev in, uh, in Ukraine. I can assure you that more than 10% of their happiness levels is determined by external circumstances. Or take an, uh, another example of you know, a person living in dire poverty. In almost all cases, their happiness levels are going to be affected by more than just 10%. 
Mm. It's the same with, uh, with um, genetics. Some people have very strong bias towards uh, uh, negativity or anxiety or depression or joy and love and happiness. And they're mm. affected by more than 50% by their genetic makeup. Now, what about choices? Why is that an average as well? Because when it comes to choices, if we're mindful of the choices that we have, then we can affect our life by more than 40%. How do we become mindful? You know, many of the choices that we have are what I call rhetorical choices. So for instance, if I ask you now, Mark, tell me, do do you want to be grateful uh, for all the good things in your life? Do you want to be appreciative of all the wonderful people in your life? Or do you want to take it all for granted? You know, silly question. Of course, you'll say, yeah, of course, I want to appreciate. Every person will say, I want to appreciate. I want to be grateful for the good things in my life. And yet, and yet, most people, most of the time, take the good things in their lives for granted. So we have a rhetorical choice. It's obvious what we want to do. And yet, most people don't make the right choice. So how do we make the right choice more of the time? We need reminders in our lives. Reminders in the form of a screensaver or reminder in the form of reading something every morning when you wake up, a passage or uh, your key, your core values or reminder in the form of wearing a bracelet that will remind you to be present or to be kind or to be grateful. And having these reminders of the rhetorical choices that we can make can significantly increase our levels of happiness. Mm. And it seems like it fights against that habituation to happiness that seems to happen, right? That you need to do something different to potentiate your, your, your mind, your change, your learning around happiness rather than just falling into the same old slump. I mean, I think lots of people have found themselves in a place in their life where they, like Dante, wake up in the woods and, and think, how did I get here? What happened? You know, I don't even, I don't even remember. And there's this hypnosis that happens when you just fall into a rut. So I, I like that idea of doing something that snaps you out of it, having a talisman of sorts that snaps you out of your rut. And, and you know, and, and, and you, can, you can have a reminder just around that, because we know that when we're really present to, to something, whether it's to a conversation, whether it's to our, you know, bedroom that we know inside out, supposedly, when we become really mindful, we always notice new things. And Mm. Alan Langer, in her research on uh, mindfulness, talks about how in every situation, we have a choice to remain mindless or to become mindful. Now, when the situation is novel, uh, we're usually mindful because it's exciting, it's new, whether it's a relationship, whether it's it's a location. But If we're with the same person for a long time, or if we're in the same space for a long time, we need to do a bit more work. We need to become active, to look for novelty, to be present Mm -hmm. to whatever it is that we're experiencing, because no moment is the same as any other moment, because no step in the river is the same as any other step in the river. And therefore, we need to remind ourselves remind ourselves to be mindful, remind ourselves to draw novel distinctions in the world, in the words of uh, Alan Langer. And then we can derive a lot more from what we have. Then we can be more appreciative of what we have. Then we capitalize on that 40% average more so. Mm -hmm. 
And it reminds me of the the training effect that happens in physical fitness as well, where if you're always doing the same thing, you'll see improvements, but eventually plateau, that you have to mix it up. You have to, to confuse your muscles a little bit. So tell me about then your trainings, the more formal trainings that you do in terms of happiness, uh, the, either whether it be the Harvard happiness course and why that was so popular, you think, uh, or your more your newer trainings that you're doing as well, your certified happiness teacher. Um, what do those look like? Tell, tell me a bit more about those. Yeah, so so the reason why you know the Harvard class grew was because it was practical, it was applied, and um, again it was science, evidence based applications. Um, and what I've done over the past twenty years is developed a, a number of programs to to help people increase their levels of happiness, to make uh, those rhetorical choices and and other less rhetorical choices in their lives that can increase their levels of happiness, and it can help them help others do the same. Um, so right now we have a certificate in happiness studies, which is a year-long program where we have students from over 70 countries. Um, it's fully online. Uh, we also meet in different places. So if, if, if they want to have the face-to-face -face interactions, that's, um, that, that's a possibility, of course. Um, so that's a year-long program. And what I'm most excited about now is that... Um, this fall, we are launching the world's first master's degree in happiness studies, which is going to be offered um, through the Happiness Studies Academy with uh, Centenary University, fully online, fully accredited uh, master's degree, where uh, students will, again, help themselves become happier and help others do the same by looking at... Uh, modern research uh, and science from, uh, um, from uh, positive psychology, from neuroscience, from, uh, as well as ancient wisdom, from philosophy and literature, and then going back, coming back to the present, uh, learn from films. Because, you know, happiness studies is such a rich field, and there are so many people who have, who have thought about it, talked about it, and, and can teach us. So we're about learning from uh, all those willing to teach. Now, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but before I let you go, I have to I have to ask, you know, for those who are watching this or listening and they want to change, they want to become happier, they feel unhappy and they want to change. What would you suggest as a basic kind of starting protocol for someone who wants to make that assessment, that self-assessment, uh, and then start to, to uh, change the way that they interact with the world? What, what could you suggest? Good. So, so the first thing I would suggest is... Um, Understand that change is possible and that small changes make a big difference if consistently applied. So in that light, keep in mind the three R's of change. The first R of change is reminders. Create reminders that you read in the morning, uh, wear a bracelet around it. Uh, have it on your smartphone, create reminders in your life of the kind of person you want to be, of the kind of life that you want to live. So that's the first R, reminders. Second R is repetition. Remember, it has to be done consistently. Going out and exercising, you know, once or twice or even seven times, it's not enough to bring about lasting change. You need to do it three times a week, at least. Um, or you meditate, even if you meditate for two minutes a day, do it daily. Or uh, if you decide to introduce more kindness into your life, 
which is a, a, a huge um, um, initiator of uh, an upward spiral of a happier life. Introduce it every day, one extra act of kindness. So all these changes, repeat them. Have reminders and then repeat. And then you get to the third R where it becomes a ritual. It becomes a ritual when the neural pathways have been transformed. They have changed their form. So that your mind already gets you, your brain already gets you to act in a certain way. Just like you brush your teeth every day, that's a ritual. You do it automatically. Just like, uh, you know, if you play tennis, you know, you hit a tennis ball in the same way over and over again. Because initially you were reminded how to hit it, whether it's by a coach or by yourself. And then you repeated it over and over again until it becomes a ritual, second nature. So go through the three R's process. Do it for small interventions. And over time, they compound and they make a big difference. Hmm. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, co-founder and chief product officer for Potential Life. Uh, your latest book, you've written so many books. What's your latest book? Um, so the latest one is uh, Happiness Studies, which is uh, about this new field of studies, and it's the foundation for our master's degree. And uh, another one which I published around the same time was Happier No Matter What, which is how do we deal with hardships and difficulties and become more resilient or more anti-fragile, in the words of Nassim Taleb. I love it. I'm going to pick up both of those books uh, and all of uh, uh, Dr. Benjahar's other books. Thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation today, Tal. Thank you, Mark. I did too. This is the LifeWorks Living Well podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hennick, and we'll be right back. In our changing world, there is an unchanging principle for success that inspires us. By improving a person's life, we'll improve how they perform at work. We are LifeWorks. We are the world's leading total well-being provider. We are innovators with tech-enabled solutions. Our mission is to improve people's lives by supporting the whole person, their mental, financial, physical, and social well-being. These people are the heart of successful organizations, leading these organizations to a more resilient future and making a real difference in the world and in our communities. Improving lives, improving business. We are LifeWorks. We're almost out of time, but I'd like you to hear from just one more person. Dr. Lee Wentland is a clinical neuropsychologist, and she's the U.S. Regional Clinical Director of Ability CBT for LifeWorks. Lee, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Now, LifeWorks Ability CBT service has been rapidly expanding. I think that's at least in part to, to meet a need, an appetite that people seem to have for strategies, real tangible strategies to navigate difficult experiences, both personal and professional. Um, so for those who don't know, can you tell us briefly what CBT actually is in essence, but then also how Ability CBT in particular is designed to help? Absolutely. So cognitive behavioral therapy, the acronym is CBT, 
has been around for a long time, decades. It's used in face-to-face therapy to teach individuals real strategies for helping them to manage their mental health issues. So it works with behavioral changes and cognitive changes to improve overall functioning and ultimately quality of life. What we've done with Ability CBT from LifeWorks is we've moved that cognitive behavioral platform into an online therapy-assisted, module-based, app-provided program to help individuals access it in a simpler way. So some of the barriers that we know exist for people who want face-to-face therapy, maybe they can't get an appointment, maybe they can't take off work. It's costly. It's time consuming. They don't want to run into their neighbor in the waiting room. What Ability CBT does is it allows us to kind of address some of those barriers and get people the help that they need in a format that they may be more comfortable with. So it allows for messaging. It allows for the individual to use the product anywhere at any time with the assistance of a real therapist who is credentialed and professionally licensed. This sounds amazing and incredibly helpful. So how can people get access to it? There are a few different ways that we're providing access to it. One would be to check it out online and then talk to your employer about the service. We know employers are trying to service their employees and help provide supports that are useful and helpful to keep employees at work and more productive. So asking your employer to check into maybe providing it for you as an employee. Another option is to talk to your health plan. We're working hard to get it supported by health plans in the U.S. so that it would be covered by your health insurance benefits. So you would have another option for supporting your mental health. That's another way in which you can access. Lee Wentland, she's the U.S. Regional Clinical Director for Ability CBT for LifeWorks. Thanks for being here, Lee. Thank you for having me. That's all the time I have this week on Living Well. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, for our incredible conversation about positive psychology and happiness. And thanks to you, as always, of course, for listening. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the show wherever you're getting it. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and everywhere else. Think I can add a few more in there? You can go back and check out all of our episodes from our three seasons so far on any of those platforms, as well as at livingwellpod.com. You can connect with me directly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and YouTube, too, if that's your bag, at Mark Hennick. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. I stream all the video from all of these episodes on there, so let me know in the comments section what you thought about the show and who you'd like me to talk to next. If you found it helpful and inspiring, share it with your networks, your friends and family and co-workers and colleagues and everybody else. Thanks again for sharing some of your time with me today. I've been your host, Mark Hennick. Until next time, take care and live well.